0: Shooting it raw? Yes.
1: Shooting it raw. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Shooting It Raw. The news I've been seeing around this week has been kind of bonkers, and it's specifically around Paul Watson and uh, his involvement with Sea Shepherd. And thats it's just crazy to me the way there's this organizational drift. So Paul Watson, to me, is, is one of these heroes of conservation, a personal hero of mine for sure. You know, he helped co-found Greenpeace. He founded Sea Shepherd. He's been an incredibly important voice and presence in marine conservation. Which to me is important. So look, uh, back in 2020, I had the, the supreme privilege of speaking with Paul. It was such a treat. It was such an honor. And yeah, so please listen to this, this one. Uh, share it if you can. Get people to subscribe to the podcast. Because you know the more people subscribe, the more people hear the episodes. And uh, the happier we'll be. Okay, thanks.
2: For 45 years, I've always maintained that the most powerful weapon on the planet is the camera. And that's why uh, documentation has been a very, very important part of all of Sea Shepherd's work. You know, if it's not on camera, it, uh, it didn't happen. It's, uh, the camera provides evidence. It uh, is educational. And it's also our means of self-defense. So photography is probably the most important tool in our uh, efforts to uh, protect the ocean.
1: Captain Paul Watson, thank you for joining me on Shooting It Raw. It's such an honor. And you will find out through the conversation where your influence has Pushed me in my own direction, but this isn't really about me. It's, it's about me opening doors and, and letting you speak and you telling your story. And what we do is we start off with photographs that you've sent over and then we go from there. So uh, let's just dive in. In the first photo I have, it's you're with your hands crossed, you're wearing a Sea Shepherd jacket with a, uh, it's like a windbreaker jacket. Underneath, you're wearing a black, it could be a sweatshirt or a t-shirt, and behind you is a white background. You've got your shock of white hair. You're looking straight on into the camera. This is just a a pretty no-nonsense portrait. Uh, There's a hint, just a hint of your right eyebrow kind of raised a little bit, and It's I wouldn't call is it adversarial? Maybe it's adversarial, but you're kind of challenging the viewer. And you've got the the logo of Sea Shepherd on your jacket. And I mean, I know who you are. I have followed you, I've been inspired by your work for for you know for all my life. And so what would you how would you like to frame this conversation starting with that image where you're just looking dead on at the viewer in this portrait?
2: I believe that photograph was taken as a promotional uh, photo for um, Animal Planet's whale wars. And uh, so they, uh, it was a photographer that came to Australia to do that. And yes, uh, what we're saying here really is speaking to the Japanese whalers that we're going to stand firm and steadfast in our efforts to uh, shut down their illegal operations in the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary.
1: Mm-hmm. So, the, so for example, on that campaign, right? You, we've talked about, or you've mentioned the, the power of photography. Uh, that show, obviously, you know, really brought the message. Already, you had a worldwide following, but that show really seemed to break it into people's consciousness even more. So, in the pose of the the, the photograph, was that from the Animal Planet or the producer who said, "This is kind of what we're imagining." how you're going to come off in this portrait we're facing you you have to deal with us we're not going away
2: yes i believe that they wanted a photograph that uh, showed uh, defiance and uh, determination so i gave them that pose
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay you're canadian i find it really interesting that there's this slice of canadians something about the canadian ethos value system, connection to the environment, whatever we call it, that, you know, uh, Rob Stewart, for example, was a big champion of shark conservation. And he's originally from Toronto, which is where the nearest shark is like thousands of kilometers away. I grew up in Montreal. Again, the nearest shark is probably a few thousand kilometers away. So what do you think Connects Canadians to this environmental awareness and protection, do you even think it's, it's a thing
2: i was I was born in Toronto, but I was raised in a fishing village in uh, New Brunswick, and uh, when I was young, I moved out to Vancouver where I became one of the founding uh, uh, members of uh, the Greenpeace Foundation. Now the interesting thing about it is that the modern uh, environmental activism movement began in Canada. It began with uh, Greenpeace, and um, out of Canada also emerged the David Suzuki Foundation and Rob Stewart, as you uh, as you mentioned. And so many other uh, activists have come from Canada. Why is that? I think that uh, in Canada that we enjoy, you know, an incredibly uh, natural environment in a way more so than other than other countries. Uh, we see what we have, and we also realize what we could lose. Mm. You know, we're close to the sea on both coasts. Uh, and I had the, uh, the, I was fortunate enough to uh, have experienced life both on the Atlantic and on the Pacific. But uh, there's something there. There's something there, certainly, that uh, motivates a lot of Canadians to become involved on a very, very active level. Not really quite sure what it is, but uh, the reality is there. I mean, there's so many. Um, environmental activists who are Canadians, you know, Bob Hunter, Rob Stewart, as you mentioned, uh, Elizabeth May, uh, David Suzuki, um, you know, some uh, Dr. Paul Spong, so many. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, this is something that has evolved uh, since the uh, late 60s. And Canada has become, a, you know, a birthplace for, for activism.
1: Yeah. I mean, because, for example, I remember being, you know, growing up in Montreal, watching the nature of things, being inspired by David Suzuki, and then also being aware of the activist protest of actually going and, and getting in the way of the seal hunts in terms of those images and the, the forcefulness of, of actually not being kid glove uh, cotton balls with the message of actually saying, you know, fuck off. Like, no, we have to stop. Like, we have to stop on a much, much smaller scale. Uh, After being in in Hong Kong for a little while, just a a couple of years, I realized Hong Kong is is the ground zero of the shark trade. And I thought, well, if I can make a difference here, that might actually have an impact beyond. And so when I started Shark Rescue, the standard, the gold standard I had was Sea Shepherd, who says, you know, we are actually not going to be convenient. We're not going to be polite. We're going to get in your face and we're going to say, no, stop. Why are you, like, what's in the ingredients of your brain? Like, why did it manifest in this way that, because Canadians are known for being very polite and very respectful of the other and all this stuff. Yet, why is it that when it comes to this, there's a bravery that is so clear and attractive to people that you attract people from around the world. So can you explain why do you think you have that guts to do that, to do what you do? Because it's, anybody who's seen the show will quickly see that you guys are just incredible.
2: Well, personally, I don't think Canadians are that polite. I think that's a mythology. <laughs> uh, you know, Canadians are very outspoken, uh, especially when they're passionate uh, about something. You know, Parley Mowat example is a good example. I mean, he uh, took on the, the government over the wolves. Uh, he wasn't afraid to uh, say what he uh, meant and uh, to say it forcefully.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, so, you know, I believe that's sort of a really, uh, really a myth. I think that Canadians are probably uh, less fearful of their government than, say, Americans are and many Europeans. OK. And that, I think, also lends a, a lot of uh, strength in that. I mean, we're we, we dare to speak out against the government, because for the most part, uh, you know, again, it's a myth that Canadians absolutely respect their government. I don't believe that's true either.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: We do not only speak out against the government, but we uh, uh, physically intervene against the policies uh, of the government, whether that be the seal hunt or uh, uh, logging or fish farms Mm -hmm. or fur industry or pollution, so many things that we speak out against the government. We're not afraid to do so. Uh, We don't have to worry about repressive Backlash that you would see, for instance, if you're opposing, uh, say, uh, pipelines in uh, in the United States, mm-hmm. and that states is far more uh, authoritarian in the in that respect. Right. Of course, so we're also dealing with a different type of government. You know, Bob Hunter used to describe the Canadian government as fascism with velvet gloves. <laughs> in other words, it's there, but uh, you know, it's hit. Uh, what's the difference between uh, Trudeau and? Uh, donald trump not much really except that probably trump was more honest than trudeau i mean trudeau's the darling of the environmental movement and yet he's pro pipeline pro tar sands pro pro oil tankers pro seal on pro all of this stuff and yet uh but he he's got this reputation Mm -hmm. so Canadians speak through that uh mythology and uh speak truth to power in that
1: respect there are voices out there who will speak truth to power and who, who, who do not fear or go away from the uncomfortable conversations. And so you're one of these people who, who very easily, like just now, you very easily say things that I think other people might find a little bit uh, confrontational, controversial, or, or upsetting. How do you feel about the fact that you may offend people in the audience?
2: I'm not really concerned about offending uh, people. I mean, my clients are not people. I represent the, uh, all of those species that uh, live in the ocean, you know, from, uh, from phytoplankton to the great whales. So those are my concerns. You know, back in 1986, when we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet and sh- destroyed their whale processing plant and shut down their industry for 17 years, I was approached by a former colleague in Greenpeace who said to me, you know, what you did in Iceland was reprehensible, unforgivable, and you're an embarrassment to the entire movement. And I said, well, so? He says, I think you should know what people think about what you did. I said, you know, John, I don't care. Didn't sink those whaling ships for you. Didn't sink them for Greenpeace. Didn't sink them for any human being on the planet. We sank them for the whales, John. Mm-hmm. Find me one whale that disagreed with what we did, and I promise you we won't do it again.
1: Mm-hmm what i like is about the the clarity of of your message and your the forcefulness of it and 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 i understand that some people are going to be like no whoa you're gonna be a little bit like the you know like in the spectrum you have wwf and then you have like friends of the earth and you have greenpeace and then you are on on the spe- side of the spectrum of PETA and other ones that i think make people feel uncomfortable and and i and i love how you're just like well who cares? I'm not here to please an audience. I'm here to make the point of, for example, saving the whales. Let's just say there's a normal distribution of people, right? So most people are going to, like, let's say, 80% of the people are going to be like, well, you know, in the middle of the road. But you need to have that 10% on the extreme that, like, you and and other people who are going to be very forceful and and sort of clear about the the message. Do you think that small population can be increased or do you think that it will always be like a kind of a fringe notion?
2: The history of humanity has demonstrated that every single significant social change that has ever happened has been carried out with less than 10% of the population. Mm -hmm. The other nine just go along. They Mm -hmm. go with the winner. Whoever triumphs, they go along with. So, uh, you know, whether it be the abolition of slavery or the women's rights movement, uh, the would Give Women the Vote, or the Civil Rights Movement, all of these things were carried out by a minority of uh, very outspoken activists. Mm-hmm. and activists. Uh, and every single revolution in history has been, been the same. As Margaret Mead uh, once said, uh, don't expect governments or corporations to solve any social problem. They never have and they never will. Governments cause problems, they don't solve problems. Mm-hmm. All change comes through the passion of uh, of individuals, the passion, the courage and the imagination of individuals or groups of individuals. That's what co- that's what makes change. Mm. So I think it's my uh, duty as a conservationist to rock the boat, and to basically to piss people off to mm-hmm. make them think. I'm not really concerned about what people's uh, what people think about me. Uh, you know, as I think it was Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here, provoke, we're here to provoke thought.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, we do that through action. As somebody who's also aware and conscious of personal branding, so in my day job, I do leadership training and, and that kind of consulting stuff. And one of the great consistent things about how you come out into the world. I was I was hoping to have images that you yourself made and I learned that well this this isn't really how you want to go into the world showing the the sort of the more personal side. And so for example the images of you on a on a ship it is all very dark. Okay so you're essentially standing to the le- on the left side of the image and you're standing on like a kind of a gangway and it's all black metal and wood. There's the ocean behind you and a white sky, not many clouds. The one bit of color is a a life preserver in yellow. Next to it is maybe a buoy, which is in the you know a fluorescent orange. It's just and then you're standing, I guess, in in khakis or something in a white shirt, and there's your hair in the wind. and it's just it's the full on Captain Paul Watson out at sea. In a way, it's an like just like the other image of you with Sea Shepherd, just looking straight on at the viewer. In this image, describe the day that that image was made. I believe that's a photograph
2: by Joanne MacArthur. Here's the thing, I don't take pictures myself. I don't do video. Uh, It's not my talent, and I'm not going to pretend to be so. Uh, I certainly delegate that uh, position to uh, numerous skilled uh, and wonderful photographers, whether that be Gary Stokes or Joanne MacArthur, or uh, Rob Stewart, or so many others that have come with us, uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, Barbara Vegas, another one. They're the ones who do that job, and they do it well. And uh, so I would never even presume to compete with that kind of uh, <laughs> talent. Uh, so I've never actually taken a photograph of anything. Mm-hmm. But I certainly do uh, put uh, photographers in a position to capture Images, uh, not of myself really, but capture images of the actions of the campaigns of the of the uh, of our client.
1: Mm-hmm. I think every time you say campaigns, I, I hear a bell. <laughs> okay, so I've spent the past oh I don't know thirteen to fifteen years working with a very successful. Business person who helped build a global service network, right? And so we really looked at the the ingredients of leadership and how to separate leadership from management. And in terms of of your development as a leader on your ships, right? So let's go back to the early days of when when you decided I'm gonna, I'm going to form Sea Shepherd. It is a, re- uh, a reflection. And a representation of of the founder of, of your spirit, and I think that's what people really connect to Sea Shepherd. So describe how those early days evolved. This the decision to, to say, you know what, I'm kind of gonna I'm gonna go with this alone, maybe, or I'm going to venture off and start something new, put onto the world with a new kind of message. So. Can you go back to those days and, and try to reaccess the, the, those feelings of, of how that came about and what, what triggered that, that evolution?
2: Well, you do what you have to do. Uh, you know, uh, one of the most valuable lessons that I ever learned was in 1973 during the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota by the American Indian Movement. I had volunteered for the American Indian Movement to be a medic uh, during that occupation. And we were surrounded by about 3,000 federal troops who were shooting at us. 20,000 rounds a night. They wounded 46, killed two. Oh, wow. I went to Russell Means, uh, who is leader of the American Indian Movement. And I said, look, the odds are against us. We have no hope of winning. Why are we here? And he said something that stayed with me forever, which is that... uh, He said, well, we're not worried about the odds against us, and we're not concerned about uh, winning or losing. We're here because it's the right thing to do, the right place to do it, and the right time to do it. He said, don't worry about the future. Focus on the present. Everything you do in the present will define what the future will be. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done ever since. I don't worry about the future. I've always focused on the present. What can I do in the now? What I started uh, as an organization is now a movement. It's beyond my control, and that's great. Uh, that's what I always wanted, the evolution of an organization into a global movement. And uh, one of the things, my sort of brand of leadership, I guess, is uh, to delegate, you know, to delegate uh, positions into authority and that. On ships, we run our ships uh, by chain of command. As captain, I only speak to the uh, chief officer, the chief cook and the chief engineer, and they carry on those uh, Relay those orders down along the line. That's mm-hmm. how the ships are run. Uh, with the Sea Shepherd today, what I do is basically uh, nothing in regard to that. You know, the directors run their countries, the, sh- the captains run their ships, and uh, I'm available really for advice, but uh, I don't give orders. And that's uh, is what made us successful a- 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 as a movement. Mm-hmm. Many years ago, Bob Hunter said. Look, when you get power, just let it go. Don't hold on to it. And that's the only thing you can really do.
1: Hmm. So if we're to think of Sea Shepherd as a kind of this emerging, visualize something like the roots of a tree or the branches of a tree that with each year, each branch gets thicker. Some of them become trunks. Some of them give the branch off to create other sub-branches and all this stuff. And part of the movement of it is that it becomes a much wider network, right? So like, how expansive is Sea Shepherd right now? And what about the vision of where like, wh- where it will go and how it will be?
2: It'll be what it'll be. I don't really concern myself, uh, again, to the future. It's growing. Uh, it's evolving uh, as a movement. Sea Shepherd today is under the direction of its directors, like uh, Lamia Lami runs operations in France. Uh, uh, Jeff Hansen uh, in Australia, Mike Lowry in New Zealand. It's, you know, we're in Italy. We're in Germany. We're in uh, 42 different ver- various nations. And uh, it's all running. I can't even keep track of the, <laughs> of the campaign that we're doing right now. There's so many of them. And that's good. That's what I'd like. Yeah. But the other thing, that too, is um time a movement or an organization or a movement uh, grows, there's always going to be dissent within that. Uh, people who want to see it go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. want to do something else and what uh we've done with that is okay uh, instead of fighting with people like that we simply assist them in going in another direction and sometimes that you know that that, that opposition is adam anim- is there's an animosity and, and sometimes it's just friendly it's just a disagreement of of where we where we need to go mm-hmm. uh for back in uh when 1979 i had a crew member Uh, who wanted to get involved with protecting animals in laboratories. He wanted to stop cruelty to animals in laboratories. I said, well, you know, we can't do that. This is Sea Shepherd. But if you're so passionate about it, why don't you do something about it yourself? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, what can I do? I said, yeah, use your imagination. Do something. So he went back to the U.S., got a job in a laboratory, uh, exposed all of the stuff that was happening there, the cruelty. Ah, uh, took it to The Washington Post and to the TV networks, closed down the laboratory, and then he established an organization called The People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, right. which came out for our crew members. Right now, Pia Klimp, uh she is uh, the captain of uh, the Bankske vesselsco vessel, which is rescuing refugees in the in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. That was where her passion was going. Yeah. Um, Gary Stokes actually uh, you know, was a photographer with sea Shepherd and uh, and now has is running animals, uh, you know, uh, Oceans, Asia. And, and, and there's so many examples of people who mm-hmm. to do that. I mean, Rob Stewart was involved with Sea Shepherd. That's how he, his first campaign uh, you know, began, began yeah. filming sharks on board a Sea Shepherd vessel I and mean. everything. So we encourage people to go there, to follow their heart, to follow their passion, and to do so uh, within the context of their abilities. And
1: I think that works out quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had, the track record is, is really in- amazing.
2: Because uh, what we do is not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, what is Sea Shepherd? Sea Shepherd is an anti poaching organization. We don't protest, we intervene. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to uh, do something in another vein, then we certainly encourage that. But uh, we are consistent with what our approach is, and that is interception uh, against illegal activities. We have always operated within the boundaries of both practicality and the law.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, after 43 years, we've never been convicted of a felony and we've never injured or anybody, nor have we ever sustained any injuries.
1: That's definitely something that you know, I had Gary on, on the podcast, and, and that's one thing he was very clear about. It was like he really thought that it was the perfect tension, I guess, between doing what is lawful, but also what, what is necessary to stop what is unethical and highly immoral in, most, in many cases. So when was there something like I would call a happy accident where you couldn't have expected a really positive outcome that just out of the blue that you would have never been able to anticipate emerged and that was obviously related to your, your energy and your work. So can you think of a time that you had, uh, well, basically a happy accident?
2: I think that uh, it's it's an evolution of experiences. Uh, When I was uh, 10 years old, I spent the summer swimming with a family of beavers. And uh, the next summer when I went back, they were all gone. I found that trappers had taken them all. And that made me quite angry. That winter, I began to walk the trap lines and to destroy the traps and to free the animals. Uh, Then later in 1975, on the first Greenpeace campaign to protect the whales, uh, I was in a situation where a whale could have taken my life. And I could see that the whale understood what we were trying to do and uh, the effort he made to not come down and crash upon our vessel. And when I looked into the eye of that uh, dying whale, and what I saw there really changed my life. Uh, You know, not only did I uh, see understanding, but I also saw pity. Not for us, us, that we could take life so uh, uh, unthinkingly, without any any, uh, compassion at all. And I said to myself, why? Why are these whales being killed? The Russians were killing sperm whales not to eat, but for oil, spermaceti oil and sperm oil. And that was highly prized, especially in the munitions industry, where they were making intercontinental ballistic missiles using sperm, spermaceti oil as a high heat resistant oil. And mm-hmm. I said, here we are killing this incredibly beautiful, socially complex, self-aware, intelligent creature for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it struck me, you know, as a species, we're insane. And from mm-hmm. the moment on, I said, look, I don't do this for people. I do it for them. I do this for all the creatures in the sea. And uh, that's what motivates me today. Mm-hmm. I look at this planet as a spaceship, which is what it is. Sure, yeah. Yeah, we're a spaceship going around the Milky Way galaxy in this incredible voyage at incredible speeds. And every spaceship has a life support system. And that life support system provides us with the air we breathe, regulates climate and temperature, provides the food we eat. And that life support system is run by a crew, a crew of earthlings, all of those species that make it possible. Not Mm -hmm. humans. We're we're a bunch of passengers having a wonderful time, uh, uh, you know, amusing ourselves. But what we are doing is murdering crew members. We're killing them. Mm. only so many crew members you can kill before the machinery begins to fall apart and uh, is no longer capable of supporting life. So really, if we kill off the crew members... We kill ourselves. That's why I say, "All sure. the, time, if the ocean dies, we all die." No, of course. If phytoplankton disappears today, we do no—we no longer exist. Phytoplankton provides seventy percent of the oxygen that we breathe, and I don't think people even think about that. And the reason they don't think about it is because we're all involved in this collective form of mass psychosis
1: called anthropocentrism. Where now, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Paul, Paul. What? The, the th- <laughs> okay, look. Part of I think the magic of this podcast works when when you and I converse and exchange like at, around a fireside chat, right mm-hmm. And um, you know with all due respect, I mean like and this is with all due respect. Let's move on to the next photograph because when, when I was really inspired, the the, the the thing that motivated me and it gave me that energy and drive wasn't necessarily information. it was like that emotional, trigger right and so what I'm trying to get is is to create that expression of those of, of what resonates in you to hopefully resonate in other people and it's true that when you speak what you say is just dead on like it's really sharp so let's go to the third image which is, you standing, again, it's like very monochromatic in a way, like it's black and white and grays. And, and it, you know, the color is in your skin, ultimately. And you're standing outside of a door, which is, I guess, the office of Sea Shepherd. Now, is this in Canada or is this in another one of your cities?
2: It's probably in Vermont. We only have one office in the U.S.
1: In Vermont, of all places.
2: Yeah, that's where I live.
1: Oh, wow, wow, wow. Why Vermont, of all, all places?
2: Well, it's a, it's a nice place to live up here in uh, in the mountains. i uh, got uh, good weather. You don't have to worry about forest fires, earthquakes, typhoons, uh, hurricanes, mm-hmm, whatever. Uh, so it's just where I happen to be. I can't go to Canada because I'm not allowed in Canada.
1: How do you feel about the, the, the tides of politics that, in a way, have turned Canada away from you when you are actually one of Canada's real greatest champion.
2: canada does not like anybody that does what i does uh, that i do including david suzuki or parley moat or anybody else we're not very popular
1: mm-hmm. but you have a, a a more welcome home in the u.s
2: well back in 1986 i had somebody from revenue canada came to me and they stripped away sea shepherd's tax deductible status and for this reason he said are you opposed to the killing of seals in on the east coast i said yes Are you aware that the Canadian government supports that? I said, yes. He says, are you aware that that is now an uncharitable activity? You cannot disagree with the policies of the Canadian government retain your tax status. And then he went through a few other things like that. And I figured, well, you know, I can't, there's no longer an environment where I can actually work. So the U.S., uh, we have a tax uh, deductible status, as we do in most other countries except Canada. So, uh, you know, I have more freedom to grow in the United States. I'd rather deal with the Canadian, with the U.S. courts and the Canadian courts. But uh, that's just the reality of it. Uh, You know, Canada also took the tax status away from um, Greenpeace. They tried to take the tax status away from uh, David Suzuki Foundation. David actually had to resign the foundation in order for them to keep that foundation because they said that David's speeches were political. Hmm. So, you know the, the Canadian government is very, very oppressive when it comes to uh, to activists, and mm-hmm. do so in a way that again, like in Canada oh you know you' got well, such a wonderful government in Canada That's because you don't live in Canada. that's what I always say
1: hmm. <laughs> the, the flip side of I, th- I find of the Canadian psyche is passive aggressiveness that you know you don't really find in other places, and so i can I can totally understand why you would say. Well, you know, I, at least I can do my thing in the U.S. within the limits of, of the law. Okay, well, that's 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 shameful. That is totally shameful.
2: Well, I thought it was Mordecai Richler one time who said that, uh, you know, if you want to make it as a Canadian, you better make it in England or the United States first, because nobody takes you seriously unless you do.
1: Okay, so you're a force to be reckoned with. Just just in conversation, you're so sharp. And so, what is your relationship at this point to Sea Shepherd?
2: Well, I think that used to be the case, but now we have a lot of leaders, uh, a lot of uh, captains who are good speakers and and that. I still do most of the writing, really, but, uh, you know, again, it's uh, delegating that over to as many people as possible. The CEO, I guess, of of Sea Shepherd today is Alex Cornelison, who is uh, Captain Cornelison, who's based in Amsterdam. Captain Peter Hammerstead is in charge of our African campaigns and our Latin American campaigns. Uh, so this is working out really quite well uh, that way, and uh, you know, there's no there's no way that one person can actually manage all of this, and uh, I certainly don't believe in micromanagement. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that the evolution of Sea Shepherd from an organization to a movement has worked out really well.
1: Mm-hmm. One half of the of the the spirit of of this podcast is the idea that every second is a gift. We are just voyagers on this incredible spaceship. You have a 15-year-old who looks and is thinking, okay, I want to do something. So what can you say to that, to any of those people to say, okay, look, this is what you can actively do?
2: You find out what you're passionate about and follow that passion by uh, harnessing your skills and your ability to both uh, the virtues of courage and imagination. Mm -hmm. You can change Age, um, in fact, younger people are probably far more passionate about these things. I mean, look what Greta Thunberg has uh, been able to to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have an intuitive understanding. And what our educational systems do is they beat that intu- intuition out of us. Uh, so I, I, what I say to young people, I don't tell young people anything. I try to encourage their in- intuition and their
1: imagination. mm mm-hmm. With regard to marine ocean conservation, what would you say right now is a pressing concern? Diminishment of, uh, of species is far
2: more of a threat than climate change. In fact, it's one of the contributors to climate change. Uh, and what we're seeing right now is a massive diminishment of, uh, of species and ecosystems, uh, marine ecosystems, and also a diminishment of species on land and uh, terrestrial ecosystems. Uh, this is causing uh, is a cause for a lot of a lot of concern. The world is rapidly changing, and we're um, we're fabricating the, that, those changes through our behavior.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right now, for instance, uh, we're involved with this COVID nineteen virus. And you know, for since nineteen ninety five, I've been predicting that this is going to get worse and worse. Because why do you have these emerging zoonotic transmission of viruses? Because of the destruction of ecosystems and the diminishment of species. Mm-hmm. And as these are diminished, the viruses associated with those species need somewhere to go, and we're a very attractive host. So since 1995, you've seen the rise of Ebola and SARS and MERS and West Nile and and Zika and and AIDS and all these things like this even from even before. And um, all of this is because of what we're doing to this planet. And now, added to zoonotic transmission of viruses, you've got emerging pathogens coming out of the permafrost. Mm -hmm. I mean, a couple of years ago, uh, Siberia, Period. Two hundred thousand year were killed by anthrax from a pathogen that emerged from the uh, from the permafrost. We are creating a situation where we're rapidly becoming aliens on our own planet. Mm -hmm. That is, that we might not be able this planet might not be able to support us, and um, we'll be walking around on the Earth with spacesuits.
1: Here's what's here's what's interesting to me is fundamentally what you're demanding is a balance between human behavior. And our place within the biosphere as as a part of it, as not as above or separate to it. So yeah. how often have you heard the the accusation that you, Captain Paul Watson, are a deeply committed humanist, that one of your major concerns is to, to help humanity find its place to get its, its act together?
2: Well, I'm just saying that unless uh, human beings learn to live in harmony with all other species, that uh, we're not going to survive. That uh, basic laws of ecology, the law of diversity, the strength of an ecosystem lies within diversity within it. The law of interdependence, that all of those species are interdependent with each other, and the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth, a limit to carrying capacity. And what we're doing is we're stealing the carrying capacity from other species which results in diminishment of both interdependence and diversity. And that's, uh, that's not going to lead to anything that, uh, any world that we're going to be able to live in.
1: If there is a kind of joyful leadership in your own life, what in there brings a smile to your face or a sense of deep satisfaction?
2: What gives me the most joy is uh, being out with nature, whether that be on the ocean or... Uh, my favorite place in the world is Antarctica, uh, or being in the mountains. It doesn't really matter. You know, I take great pleasure in seeing other species. I take great pleasure in, uh, in just seeing the natural world for being what it is. And, um, and it also motivates me to do everything I can to uh, see that that's not destroyed. One of the problems that we have... With humanity is our ability to adapt to diminishment, that we just keep accepting less and less and less. And I don't want people to get what we have. Stop just accepting that it's going to be less. I mean, look how how much we accept and we don't even think about it. 1965, the very idea, if I were to tell you that in 40 years time, you'd be buying water in plastic bottles and paying more for that water than the same amount of gasoline, you would have looked at me like I'm crazy. Nobody's going to do that. Yet here we are. Mm -hmm. So that's one, of, one message I like to get across to people is, you know, just stop accepting
1: diminishment. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you'd like to, to say to fuel the, the emerging undiscovered Greta Thunberg out there who's just waiting to come out and step forward? Because it takes a certain courage or it takes a certain spark or catalyst. So what, what kind of catalyst or spark would you put onto the world to try to encourage that
2: I think everybody should understand that they, each and every one of us has the power to make a difference. And all we have to do is uh, harness that passion that we have for whatever it is that we're passionate about to courage and imagination. Because of Diane Posse, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Because of David uh, Wingate, the Bermuda Storm petrel did not go extinct. So many examples of how one individual has changed the world for the better. And I can't think of a more noble cause than because you live, a species didn't go extinct or an ecosystem wasn't destroyed. That's far more noble than anything else I can think of. You know, when, when people join the Sea Shepherd, the one question I ask when they want to join the crew is I said, are you prepared to risk your life to protect a whale? And when people say, well, that's asking a lot. I said, why is that asking a lot? We ask young people all the time to risk their life, to kill people over property, real estate, oil, religion. I think it's a far more noble thing to take that risk to protect an endangered species or to prevent the extinction of a
0: species. Mm -hmm.
2: But again, you know, society, uh, an anthropocentric society where we don't really take into account the concerns of non-humans and how important they are to our own survival. We don't live in a planet without bees or whales or trees. Uh, We need them. They don't need us.
1: A hundred percent. Paul Watson. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you. I give my best to Gary if you have Oh,
1: for sure. Thanks so much. Take care.
2: Thanks. Bye.
0: Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw.